So, uh, as you may have heard, uh, Windows 10 came out recently. In celebration, like in all this excitement, you're supposed to buy new hardware for this. So, uh, like I got a laptop, and you know what I did? What did you do, Andrew? I installed Linux on it! Yeah, Linux! Wait, that's not what you're supposed to do? Well, I mean, I guess it depends upon if you like Linux or not, but, uh, yeah. This is Control Structure, episode 91, for August 1st, 2015. Big week to everyone listening. This show has notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs91 to see them. And with me is uh, Andrew Bailey. Hi. Hi. And I'm your other host, Stephen Orbis. So, uh, since I haven't got my Chris fix in... And like we've sort of been fringing for a while, I have to say this. Hi, Steve. Hi, Andrew. So, yeah, you know, unlike unlike Chris, you tend not to barge into my apartment and just start talking to me. So, uh, you know, we actually have time for such niceties like saying hello towards the beginning of our conversation, right? Yes, we normally do say hello towards the beginning of the conversation, not towards the end. So, uh, as I mentioned on uh, our previous episode, I was uh, going to, uh, you know, go through The Witcher 3, and I finally ended up finishing it uh, last week, and, uh, you know, it's it's a very, how should I say, in-depth RPG, um, so it's, like, sort of like the end of the trilogy there, and, uh, like, I, I cannot avoid making comparisons to Mass Effect 3, which is, was also the end of an RPG trilogy. Uh, but Witcher 3 did everything right, in my opinion. Um, so, like, both games are, you know, emphasized choice. You know, like, you, you know, come up on a situation and you have to choose, you know, whether to go, you know, do this thing or not do this thing or kill this person or kill this other person. And, uh, you know, un- unlike The Witcher, Mass Effect is more of a good or bad type of system, uh, where uh, The Witcher emphasizes a lot of gray choices. So, uh, and I also liked it in the fact that you really did not know what choices you made, like, actually influenced this aspect of the end. Using this game doesn't... Witcher 3... Give like, you visibility. Yeah, like... You know, some some choices were evident, others not so much. So you know, it's that a very. Sounds, so, I was going to say that sounds like it makes it a good go back and play it again and try different choices kind of game. Definitely. So I may be playing this again, but only after like I get new hardware and stuff. But yeah, that's a very long game, and at least for me, was very worth it. So, uh, and I just I guess you've uh, just been playing World of Tanks. Yeah, I, I played two battles tonight, and that's the extent of my gaming today. Uh, I think I may have played a couple other batter- battles this week, and again, that was the extent of my gaming. So, uh, this is uh, something I came across, I think, just yesterday. So, you know, like all the, uh, you know, someone, guy walks into a bar joke, 
but this one's about QA engineers. Uh, QA engineer walks into a bar, orders a beer, orders zero beers, orders nine 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 beers, orders a lizard, orders negative one beers, orders a sufdelkasnz, and uh, so this guy made a blog post, you know, about this. Uh, you know, because he posted this on Twitter, he made a you know post about this, you know, sort of going in depth, and also the uh, whole range of responses he got back, and they're genuinely uh, pretty funny. Uh, so, like, yeah, orders a beer, orders an alcoholic beverage, orders a alcoholic beverage, orders the bartender. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, orders an upside down beer, orders a beer an IE six. Orders a beer from a customer instead of the bartender. Uh, let's see. Walks into a bar backwards. Runs into the bar. Sits at the bar overnight doing nothing to see what happens. Tries to sell a beer. Uh, QA engineer walks into a bar. Runs into a bar. Flies. Jumps. Hops. Sprints. Um, let's see. And uh, orders a second beer before the first one's arrived. And then... <laughs> I think one of the better ones is at the bottom. Uh, the bar's first real customer walks in and asks where the bathroom is. The bar bursts into into flames, killing everyone. <laughs> I, I like that one the best of all the ones. It's like when you actually use software for real in a real life scenario. It's like, oh, we didn't think about that. But we tested all this other stuff and all this other stuff it, it can do. Yeah. So, uh, you know... You just got to, you know, test the features of everything, you know, um, you know, at the very least, you know, say, oh, we don't have a bathroom. <laughs> so uh, anyways, uh, let's go on to something else sort of embarrassing, but maybe not really. Uh, Time Warner, uh, which is uh, a cable company that's not around here, but is back from where I come from. Uh, owes about a quarter million dollars to a woman whom they would not stop calling, even after she informed them many times that the person who formerly had this number cannot be reached at this number anymore. Uh, even they kept calling her even after she started taking legal action against these phone calls, 40% of which happened after that started. Uh, so how many of them? Uh, well, apparently 153 uh, so this was like two, maybe three times a day over a couple of months. I found so. it interesting that they uh, didn't stop it after the lawsuit started. And like they said in the article, it means they kind of didn't really take it seriously at all. They're like, ah, we don't care, basically is what it amounted to. And it seemed like it was for some bill payment or something. Yeah. Just like if, if you're calling a person that many times to try and get uh, them to pay up, you think there'd be more efficient means like, I don't know, collection agency or something to try to get your money yeah so what happened was this was a new phone number uh, at least for her the mm -hmm. previous owner uh, of the phone number apparently had this but appa but apparently uh, the idea of someone changing phone numbers is not something that time warner apparently thought of so and uh you know this is i think it was from the uh beginning of the month yeah uh july 7th uh and i if i remember correctly i think there was a similar article about a different uh about a different cable company 
that happened, you know, just a few days after this, where, you know, someone was awarded like a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars from another cable company because they wouldn't stop calling. Raspberry? 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 Raspberry! Raspberry! That feels so good. It does. It's good to have a raspberry. So, uh, what's uh, this week's raspberry? So this week it's on a Raspberry Pi 2 cluster case. Uh, and what it is, is this guy's made this double-wide case with stackable pies. So he ends up he can fit six pies in. He has a power supply running up the middle. And uh, then, and an, Ethernet, quite... and, and, an Ethernet, and an Ethernet switch at the bottom. Oh, yes, yes, the Ethernet switch at the bottom. It looks like a pretty clever case, and he shows a picture of it sitting there on his desk. Uh, now, the software, I was perhaps you, Andrew, uh, have a better idea. Uh, he says he's using Apache Spark slash Hadoop in cluster mode. Are you familiar with what that software does, what that allows you to do? So, Hadoop is a like a storage area network type of software. It's like essentially a distributed uh, file system. Okay. So uh, like I really don't have much experience with this personally, but like I've, you know, read people, you know, using this and stuff like in, uh, how should I say, big data type scenarios. Uh, so, you know, it's essentially like a file system that's spread over several machines so, like, there's, like, all sorts of buzzwords like asynchronous and, you know, big data that goes along with it. Mm. So. And then it's, I, I was just realizing, I was seeing it shows a picture of this spark, whatever it is, and it's showing how each pie has four cores in it. So I was realizing that's four times six that you've got their processors. Yeah. So that is uh, pretty cool there. So, you know, it's basically, you know, like, uh, clear acrylic, uh, you know, I wouldn't say, like, just pieces, like, flat uh, pieces mm-hmm. of acrylic with uh, metal spuds between them, or spacers, so. Anywho, uh, so as we mentioned, Windows 10 was released, uh, so this is the uh, first major uh, operating system, uh, at least client side, to come out since Windows 8.1, which actually wasn't too long ago, Uh but, like, Windows 8 was launched in, like, what, 2012, I think? Um, I'm not sure. It, that sounds about right, though. Yeah. So, uh, uh, this, you know, this pr- pretty much heralds back the return of the start menu uh, for those people who actually uh, did Windows 8. Uh, for those of us on 7, like myself, we've always had it. Uh, but, uh, you know, this... Uh, speaking about seven and eight, uh, you know we can upgrade this for free for about the next year or so until, like, what July twenty seventh, twenty sixteen. So, uh, so my plan is to you know like you know let it sit for a while, you know like not upgrade immediately, and maybe wait until December or January or something mm-hmm. to like get some of the kinks and stuff worked out of it. 
which sounded pretty solid given the article we were discussing the different bugs and like the one we were talking about in the pre-show about the 500 application limit in the start menu so yeah let's uh let's talk about that so ars technica uh which is generally the apple blog but uh you know you know, does have a rather uh, extensive four-page uh, review on Windows 10, and uh, you know uh, they say that it is you know a pretty much the best uh, Windows yet. Uh, but there is like still a, some kinks kinks to work out of it. Uh, specifically, the uh, start menu having a limit of 500 apps. So, like, apparently there's this uh, database indexer that uh, is going on that, uh, you know, once you hit, like, 500 programs and stuff in your start menu, that, like, if you search for it, if you, you know, look in the all apps, you know, menu, it's not going to be there. Which would be kind of annoying. Yeah, so, you know, like, as you were saying there, this, you know, was definitely something deliberate uh, and if this guy is, uh, you know, bumping up against that limit, chances are like a significant number of people are bumping up against that limit, uh, plenty enough to actually make this a problem. Yep. And it wouldn't even have to be 500 programs that you use. The key is 500 programs or things that it's indexing. And then the 501th thing that you actually do use happens to be the one that's not in that index. Yeah, that's what always happens. Exactly. Uh, although, you know, someone would probably, you know, you know, start foaming at the mouth saying, confirmation bias! <laughs> but, uh, uh, let's see, another thing that they mentioned was uh, the updates are automatic now, uh, at least for the, uh, like, the regular, or at least the home edition. Uh, if you go to Windows 10 Pro, uh, you can like hold off on some of those. So I'm guessing that must have to do for like network admins so that they can keep them from being pushed because it seems to be a, a common thing uh, for that's, network admins to monitor them. I believe that would be more of a feature of the Windows 10 Enterprise Edition. Okay. Where they can like hold off updates for like maybe a year or so. Uh, so it still forces them eventually. Uh, pretty much, or they get left behind. Wow. So, um, you know, at least, you know, I generally accept Windows updates, but, like, I let them sit for a couple days uh, because, like, there has been in the past, like, some updates that have broken things. Uh, mm-hmm. If not for me, then for other people. Mm, pretty much always other people. But, you know, if it comes around that, oh, this, you know, patch that was that came out this past Patch Tuesday... That's, you know, causing some machines to not boot. I'd rather not install that to begin with. Yep. Now, I, I've, 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 you know, haven't personally either had that happen, but I've read articles of that happening before, so it and then, definitely at least used to be a thing. And then another thing, uh, like Windows Update also pushes drivers of all kinds now, uh, which can be a problem if you're talking about your video drivers and you like to play video games a lot. Uh, because, you know, like suddenly your game is broke and you have no idea why, uh, then you might do some digging and find out that Windows illegitimately updated your, uh, video driver and that's what's causing the problem. So I'm not sure how much experience you've had with video drivers breaking some things. Um, I haven't had too much problems with them breaking things. Uh, 
I guess probably because of my extensive gaming experience with tanks. So, um, yeah, and again, overall, this, uh, you know, is a pretty, you know, solid and, you know, worthy version of Windows. Uh, it, it looks pretty exciting. Like, one, one feature that I saw right off that I, I thought was really good that they did is they took the Metro apps, and they don't have to be full screen anymore, which is really annoying on a desktop or something. Like, my, my laptop is just like, I really don't want this to be a full window. I mean, like, let me dock it to the side or something. It's, it's really bad, but I like that they don't force you to be full screen. Awesome. And, like, I'm not sure if maybe there there was some sort of third-party app that uh, essentially did that. So, uh so yeah, a lot of people uh, upgraded this. You know, as we mentioned, uh, you know, set, uh, anyone who has uh, Windows Seven or Windows Eight can upgrade to ten for free. And it looks like fourteen million installations were upgraded in the first twenty-four hours. Uh, so it looks like there is like some parties like all around the world uh, where people came together and just you know installed Windows Ten. Uh, uh, so interesting thing too you don't even have to wait for the the standard i want windows come get it thing you can you can actually just force force it to download too so uh and you know again you know the reason behind that is that if you have millions of people who are downloading like what five gigs or so like three and a half gigs Mm -hmm. uh causes a lot of uh network traffic uh so much in fact that the internet became 35% busier than normal. That's pretty crazy. So uh, I believe that was uh, a report from Akamai, which you know essentially runs a large content distribution network. So I guess know, it was a good, a good stress test of the internet showing that it can take it then. Yeah, and they thought it would be like much worse, but it seemed to have you know got through okay. It seemed like Microsoft they kind of thought out the whole bandwidth issue by not re- doing a blanket release to everyone. Instead, they're doing their, well, I'm going to reserve mine, and it's just going to let me know when it's ready to install. Because, I mean, you can do this, the alternate download, but you kind of, it's not obvious to do it. You have to search it in Google and find it. Instead of, like, there being a button to, like, download now, You there's no button that says download now. You have to search it. Yeah, and uh, it's... It's a pretty solid way to avoid a DOS attack when it's actually legitimate traffic. So, uh, you know, again, content distribution networks kind of help out with that. Um, So Mozilla doesn't exactly like the fact that program defaults are changed to Microsoft programs uh, when users upgrade to Windows 10. Uh, So, you know, they have a letter here, you know, saying that, you know, you know, it's great that you guys have a new browser, but, you know, you're not respecting the user's choices previously. Yeah, and it, it, it does seem like when you upgrade something, you kind of expect the the purpose of upgrading is I'm going to keep my programs, keep my stuff, keep my settings. And I would agree with Mozilla in that, that when you change my settings on me, that's not what I expected. I expected it to be the same. Yeah. It's so- interesting. They... They mentioned something about a couple more clicks, too. They said it's more difficult now to change your default program. Yeah. So, which, you know, makes me wonder if the uh, 
you know, if you open up a browser and it'll automatically check if it's a default if that would actually still work now? Mm, that's a good question. So, and uh, so let's uh, go back a little bit to uh, two weeks ago uh, when uh, Microsoft, they released Visual Studio 2015. Uh, so this is, uh, I believe it's an upgrade from Visual Studio 2013. And if I recall correctly, it coincided with the release of .NET 4.6. Uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd imagine that you'd have a little bit more uh, uh, knowledge on this than I would. The 2013 was a really good upgrade from the 2010, so it'd be interesting to see what's in 13. I just now, uh, I guess I better link it now. I'm going to reference it. A, five incredible features from Windows, or Visual Studio, I me. And I was just going to look at the, the features they're saying, what, custom window layout, so it looks like they're doing in the uh, the designer. They can change the layouts, but our code editor. Oh, th- this is when they're putting in the Roslyn. That, remember we talked about that? Uh, yeah. Quite a few while back we talked about that it's got an analyzer it's kind of sounds like resharper because the resharper would do a light bulb next to fixes and then you click the light bulb and then the resharper fixes stuff so it mm-hmm. sounds like they've done some resharper type of things in there which is good because really your id you should do that you shouldn't have to have like a third-party plugin to do that stuff for you mm-hmm. it says shared projects all the things and don't quite get what a shared project is Console app, run it, first name. And this says IntelliSense for Bower and NPM. So it's talked about the ASP.NET. Uh, and debug lambdas. Oh, this is going to be huge. The tdebug lambdas. Uh-huh. Because that, that's a thing with your expressions is they can get pretty complex. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to know what's going on. But it's looking like they have a window, a watch window that pops up and it shows the different elements in the Lambda. So it's like they have an array going on there and they show the different values in it. That is that is pretty nice. That is a really good feature right there. Cool. I, I'd say for me, the Lambdas, debugging them, probably is the defining feature. That and the better code editor where they do like the, uh, the fixing, kind of like a resharper style thing where they're kind of helping you clean up your code and refactor it automatically. That looks to be the the big things I'm seeing high level. Interesting. So uh, along with it, uh, you know, uh, .NET 4.6 specifically comes RuJIT, uh, which is like the next generation like .NET runtime. Uh, so one of the uh, engineers at Stack Overflow noticed a curious bug uh, that happens when, uh, like for the tail call optimizations, uh, let's see, you know, so it's essentially when you have a recursive, uh, uh, function that calls itself as the very last operation. Obviously uh, the last one bubbling back up through. Yeah. So like you don't have a stack overflow. Mm-hmm. This guy noticed this, that it was only happening on production. Like it wasn't happening during development or anything. It was only in production that this was happening. So I finally figured it out and, uh, you know, you know, warning people to, you know, you know, not use this in, uh, you know, production. Uh, but it seems that uh, fix has already been committed and uh, merged. So like, I'm not exactly sure if it's like 
how it's going to filter out to everyone. So the the nice thing that I like about this, and we were talking about this pre-show, was the fact that it's on GitHub now. We can see the commit that happened, the change that happened, and they even have like a test that proves that the fix works and how to reproduce the issue. So it was, it was, it's kind of nice to have that visibility into what they're doing. And I guess if you were really desperate to use 4.6 and you didn't want to wait for the official, you could even go ahead and uh, compile that and use that if you wanted to, even though I probably would be the best way. But the options is there if you wanted to. Yes, yeah, so uh, like the .NET blog, official .NET blog says that, you know, as stated at the start of the post, we have already started producing a patch for .NET 4.6. We will post an update when it is available. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, so, you know, when you have a safe, you know, like, you know, something that you put documents in uh, that you want them to not be stolen or... Uh, in some cases, not to burn up when everything around it is burning up. Uh, like, it's supposed to, like, stay closed and, you know, be a secure place for whatever is inside of it. Uh, a safe made by Brink uh, that accepts money and uh, so it's essentially like a cash machine, but it's also a safe. So it apparently has, you know, like, you can accept money and, uh, like... It'll scan it in and it will automatically add like whatever you put in to a bank account somewhere else. So at some like point, a way to instantly deposit them. Yeah. So at some point, the bank would come and collect said safe to you know get the money out of it and use it wherever. Uh, this particular model of safe can be opened with a vulnerability in its USB port. Uh, so this. Uh, will apparently be demonstrated at DEFCON on August 8th. So, uh, yeah, this is a pretty bad thing. And, like, even having a device that will remotely, uh, like, deposit, you know, money into an account seems pretty suspicious to me, just as a concept. So, I was really interested in how the attack worked, because they said that their device would uh, use, like, random inputs on the keyboard and mouse. Well, I think the original test, they may have figured out the combinations. But anyways, it moves the keyboard and mouse as a USB device in order to crash their program that's running so that then they can gain back-end access. I believe it, it, uh, you know, essentially escaped the kiosk mode Mm -hmm. of the device. It's an interesting concept to attack that way. Because you don't think about a USB plug-in thing like you think, oh, well, it's going to be a virus or something coming in on a flash drive. But really, that's just keyboard and mouse inputs coming in, really? which which uh, is actually a valid USB thing that you can do, but you don't think of it in that way. And just like I was thinking that a step further, you could even use that to, to deliver a payload of software. Like you could have it crash the kiosk, and then it could also have a flash drive attached like in a mini hub thing in there and then so it goes and opens up the file explorer and installs software from the, your flash drive and you get to have some virus installed that way through injecting it in yeah and it is also noted that it essentially runs windows xp but you know 
you know, exactly, you know, as we described in the attack, it wouldn't matter if it was running Windows 10 or whatever. Um, it sounds more like an issue with your software, not with the uh, yeah, operating system. Exactly. So, uh, although I'm not sure if, like, maybe using a more customizable operating system on there would help, but who knows? Perhaps. The, the other thing I was just thinking about, even just, like, having, you know, the access control, maybe... Because you're saying about you can access the back end once you once you crash the kiosk, maybe you would have a user account in Windows that there is no other way to access the uh, the back end to open it up unless you're in this other administrator account or something. So they could even make use of features like that because that would lock you up ineffectively. Uh, like you've heard about all these uh, database dumps from uh, hacked websites that you know occur occasionally with, uh, you know, like thousands of accounts, you know, essentially compromised. Uh, and these credentials are just floating out there, uh, you know, like passwords and the associated email addresses. So what if someone did a little experiment in gathering all of these and then, you know, sending people their passwords and saying that, hey, if you've ever used this password anywhere, change it. Uh, so, you know, he, he did a little social experiment and like, you know, this sounds like he's, you know, doing the right thing, you know, since at this point, you know, such information is essentially public knowledge and you're bringing this to someone's attention and saying, Hey, your really important secret is out there. Change it. So he ended up, uh, uh, doing this to 97,000, uh, emails. Uh, so you know, he uh, got a few interesting responses. So in 97,931 uh, emails, he got nine thank yous, a uh, hundred uh, delivery failures. Uh, he apparently also included an unsubscribe link uh, to which 41 people unsubscribed, including one that, you know, essentially sweared at him. Uh, 29 responses were seemed like spam addresses. Uh, some of these addresses were either compromised accounts which reply to emails with spam or were planted specifically for this purpose. And uh, he also had a sort of donation link on his website that was linked to from this email. He received no donations, but that was, you know, sort of expected. Uh, but, you know, since this experiment really didn't cost him anything, he was absolutely fine with, like, no one giving him any money for it. It was... I was just thinking through, like, what getting an email would be like. And probably I wouldn't respond to an email because you'd be suspicious of it and not wanting to reply to it. And, like, you... Unless you, like, recognized it and knew why it was. I kind of understand why not many people would have responded they would have been highly suspicious of it. And maybe the passwords were false in a lot of cases. Perhaps they weren't necessarily matched up with something that the person would recognize either. Uh, so that was actually from a month ago. Uh, one of his next articles says, I sent 281,317 users their passwords. Uh, so he says the short, you know, the short version, he's, he got banned from Mandrilla got pre-banned from SendGrid. He got himself his own mail server to do this. He 
cleaned up his password lists, he got a new email template, uh, you know, sent 281,000 some emails, and he received $82. Wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and uh, the, uh, uh, the numbers he got were essentially about the same. Uh, 68 thank yous. Uh, 29 unsubscribes, which I believe is actually a lower number. Uh, he was able to track that 3,000, uh, almost 3,500 people opened the message. So, yeah. Hmm. Pretty interesting. Is I'm wondering how many people, like the donations and stuff, were people that maybe had seen the original article or heard about it. And, uh knew what was going on so uh if you remember uh from i'm not exactly sure how long ago it was but we talked about hp's the machine and it was essentially built around uh memristors which is an elusive kind of fourth uh how should i say uh transistor the there's apparently three three kinds that are in common use there's a theoretical fourth one that apparently HP stumbled upon, and they were using it to build a completely different uh, kind of machine with a different architecture than pretty much anything else. Uh, But in the past week, Intel and Micron have talked up a new type of memory that they've been working on for some time called 3DX Point. They claim that it's 1,000 times faster and more durable than NAND Flash, Sounds suspiciously like memristors to me, uh, but I'm sort of skeptical that it is, you know, exactly, you know, that's anywhere near the times better that uh, the companies are claiming it to be. It is true that companies always try to market their product as well as they can, and another aspect of that is it's probably an estimate, an estimates or estimates. Yeah, especially for marketing, they're kind of fuzzed quite generously. Yeah, but like, yeah, it's about you know, that much. You know, I'm sort of open to the idea that something could be a magnitude faster, or maybe two magnitudes faster. That's you know, ten and a hundred times. But three? That sounds weird. And uh, like if if they put this in you know conventional solid state drives, you know, those are already pretty fast. You know, going from pretty fast to, like, going from imperceptibly fast to, like, really imperceptibly fast. Like, a thousand times faster than imperceptible. <laughs> it's still gonna be uh, pretty fast. Yep. Um, so, you know, as you know, implied, you know, it is a non-volatile type of memory. Uh, so, like, I'm not exactly sure if this is the exact same thing as the memristors. Uh, but, you know, one of the points that, you know, it is, it's non-volatile. So if you, you know, cut the power, the data still remains there. But, you know, I started thinking, you know, after we went over that, for a few things, that's actually really bad. Because, like, you can have your encryption keys in memory and have it turn off and they're still there. And, like, you know, it could, you know... The memory could be put into another machine and have it be read back, uh, you know, thereby leaking your encryption key. So, like, even in the future, you know, conventional present, you know, RAM 
will still be useful for some applications. It's true that that does make a lot of sense. With that, some I mean, you, you can't really trust any device to cleanse it though on power off if you want to do cleanse a certain area or memory block. Because what if it's suddenly unplugged, then you don't have the option to cleanse it before it, it powers down. So I mean, you could you know be fancy and add like some capacitors, uh, like you know next to like some sort of like current detection circuit. That's like if the outside power shuts off, it will quickly you know nuke everything. Ah, uh, that could make sense. Which I th- or you, which I think is what uh, even modern SSDs do. So, and uh, you know at least with. Uh, you know, conventional RAM that, you know, when you turn off the power, the data goes away. Uh, unless you're really concerned about, you know, any kind of potential adversary, you know, breaking into your, you know, facility uh, and, you know, essentially pouring liquid nitrogen on your RAM and taking it out. So, like, the data stays there. <laughs> so, I and that's actually has a name. It's called a cold boot attack. So, you know, that's essentially where, you know, like everything is essentially frozen, like physically frozen. Uh, but, uh, you know, hey, you know where you can buy RAM? Uh, you can buy RAM from Newegg. Yes. And they recently, uh, you know, celebrated the defeat of some patent trolls. Um, you know, there was like some hiccup there with their... Uh, lawsuit i believe against the uh ssl and arc 4 encryption uh uh i believe this was not the shopping cart uh lawsuit that they had but uh you know they essentially you know have a layman's description of what a patent troll is and at the end they say you know hey we're celebrating this so have a sale and it's it, the the point that they made in there was about the how typically businesses see a, a patent troll filing a lawsuit and they say well, it's cheaper to just give them the money than it is to follow through with it and fight it. But their policy is always to fight it. And so they're saying we win, you win, and it it, it is better because they're like I said they're messing with small businesses. They can put a small business out of business by suing them, and so by discouraging the behavior of the patent trolls they're they're making it better yep so you know it doesn't really matter how many trolls that they kill they just <laughs> keep coming at them thinking that oh this time it's going to be different of course uh so uh another thing that you might be able to buy from uh new egg i believe next year is uh nvidia's next generation of gpus uh I believe it was uh, last episode, or maybe the one before, that we talked about AMD's uh, recent Rage or Fu- uh, just Fury X cards, uh, which had the high bandwidth memory like right there beside the GPU. Uh, and of course, uh, Nvidia is working on their own uh, high bandwidth memory uh, chip that uh, will be released next year. It'll be called Pascal. Uh, which you know is like their code name for this architecture. Uh, it'll have 17 billion transistors uh, with 32 gigabytes of high bandwidth memory generation two. 
so this is you know quite a bit more than what uh, you know AMD's cards have, which is uh, four. Thirty. Uh, to that, I mean, that's more than your normal computer system has. Yeah, in like, term. yeah, that's the RAM of my desktop and laptop combined. Uh, so you know, again, they're probably talking about the like their very high end high end chip yeah. that will be carved down for you know like cheaper SKUs. Mm. Uh, that's not. And I was you know, think just you know looking at this, it's essentially the same thing as what AMD is doing, but with vastly bigger numbers i was thinking through like to use 32 gigabytes of the graphics card you must be doing something pretty extreme i mean maybe someday that is you know resources that you would be normal to use up but in today's terms well, i don't know if there would be many depending de- that depends on the application that you're using if mm-hmm. you're just talking about you know video games yeah I'd agree with you on that. But they also have, you know, the high performance, I believe it's their Tesla line that, you know, is essentially, you know, like one of these processors without any kind of video output that's just meant for the, uh, like the uh, computational abilities, uh, like, you know, scientific stuff. Like a Bitcoining? Yeah, like Bitcoin (laughs) mining. Although, you know, apparently NVIDIA cards aren't exactly that good for, uh, uh, like for cryptocurrency and like that has been all been taken up by, you know, uh, essentially a six, you know, like the application specific circuits that are built to mine cryptocurrency. Okay. So, uh, although, uh, you know, video cards, especially the, uh, AMD Radeon cards were, uh, pretty popular for that back in the day, back in the day being about four years ago. <laughs> So, <coughs> something I haven't heard too much about Bitcoin lately. Uh, yeah, split off. yeah, it uh, kind of like just went away after a while. Uh, but something that uh, Nvidia is, you know, more concerned with right now is uh, their Shield tablets. So, uh, like if you recall, like they have their CPU line. I believe their Tegra line. Uh, that's, you know, essentially an ARM CPU with, you know, one of their, you know, uh, video cards, you know, sort of integrated into it. Uh, so they're like, hey, we need to build a platform around this. So they did the Shield line and they came out with a tablet form of that, like their own tablet uh, uh, last year. But they're recalling all of those that they've ever sold due to a battery overheating issue. Uh, so, you know, of course, you know, they're replacing all of these. Uh, but yeah, it kind of sucks when, uh, you know, something like this gets recalled. Although this is, you know, just a gadget. Uh, this sort of reminds me of the, uh, you know, I was an early adopter of the Sandy Bridge CPUs. And uh, within about two or three weeks of release, which is about how long I had had it, uh, it comes out that all the Sandy Bridge motherboards are bad because, like, storage controller uh, is, like, essentially frying itself. And, like, we'll need to recall all the motherboards because the chipsets on them are bad. So, you know, it kind of sucked to be out of commission for, like, the week or two that uh, needed to send that back. So, yeah. So, uh, we've been sort of talking about how the government wants to have 
like some sort of a back door or way around the uh, encryption that you know everything is headed towards, you know, both in communication and like in data storage itself. Uh, so some former heads of important government departments, like the NSA, even uh, a former Homeland Security Secretary and a former former Deputy Defense Secretary. Uh, are co- coming out against the fears over encryption and the uh, pushing for backdoors uh, because they recognize the security it provides for everyday activity. And they, you know, understand that, you know, encryption is the way it is. And, you know, that's just how it works. You know, it works because, you know, there are two parties, you know, that, you know, encryption is for yourself and who you're sending it to. Is interesting they made a point in the article about how way back when they used to when they first uh invented some of the algorithms and stuff and started making use of them there was a big concern about encryption and its impact and stuff and they kind of pointing out that really it hasn't had the crippling effect that people thought it might have had yeah so you know it's been around for 20 years and you know it really hasn't been that much of a problem so yeah, we're even even thinking back the story of the the person that published an encryption program in a book just so it would yeah, be free speech. Uh, phil zimmerman uh so uh how was it uh matt stutt uh like so uh you know like last week uh you know unfortunately chris could not make it to you know, like the Friday night, you know, let's go out to eat somewhere. Uh, but Matt came and like I essentially, you know, explained to him, you know, how, uh, you know, encryption was essentially declassified as a munition. And he thought that was pretty interesting, you know, and like it didn't exactly, uh, you know, occur to me at the time that, you know, he's a, you know, pre-law major or something studying to be a paralegal. So this might actually be of interest to him. Like, I'm not exactly sure what exactly kind of law he's going into, but... Uh, I, I think he's interested in, like, uh, I forget what it's called. I want to say underwriting. I have no idea if that's the right term. He says, like, where you research, like, about houses and their 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 title or something. Something hmm. to do with real estate. But I'm sure, like, from a law point of view, you probably it's interesting from, from uh, that general topic. Yeah. And I believe the word is warranted in this situation... Like technology disrupted encryption and how it was, you know, looked at by the government. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, do some appreciate and deprecate. And I have a few things I want to appreciate. Uh, the first one is uh, teach TCG Opal self-encrypting drives. So uh, I haven't really mentioned it yet, aside from at the beginning. But yes, I actually have ordered a, a new laptop, and uh, like I was sort of disappointed in that it came with a one terabyte hard drive. So. Like, I ordered the laptop and pretty much immediately ordered a solid-state drive. And I was sort of debating back and forth whether I should get the 500 gig uh, solid-state or a 1 tera solid-state. Uh, 
So I went with a 1 Terra, and I got the Crucial MX200 uh, series 1 terabyte drive. And uh, these, like this particular series, is TC, TCG Opal 2.0 compliant. So, <clears throat> like, Opal is, you know, essentially a standard for self-encrypting drives. Uh, so, like, I'm not exactly sure if this is, like, actually in the standard, but at least on this drive, everything written to it is encrypted at, like, the storage medium level. So whether you actually, you know, take make use of it or not, it's encrypted on the actual memory chips themselves. So, uh... This sort of sounds like a plot point on a bad movie, but what Opal does is when, like, the drive is, you know, unlocked, you can do pretty much anything around with it. You know, make partitions, format, you know, read, write, do whatever. Uh, so the thing is, if you want to encrypt, uh, like, the only drive in a system, like, you actually need a part that's unencrypted so you can actually, you know, have a bootloader you know, for your operating system, right? Yes, because uh, otherwise the motherboard's going to open it up and be like, I don't know what to do with this. It's all noise. Uh, you must not have any partitions. A suitable boot device not found. Insert system disk or something. Uh, so, you know, you need to have something unencrypted so the computer can understand it and, you know, figure out a way to, you know, decrypt the drive. So, uh... When you have an Opal drive and you take ownership of it, I think that's how it's called, that suddenly you can write to a shadow uh, MBR. Uh, it's essentially like a 128 meg partition that is not accessible in any other way. And this is where you store your, you know, unencrypted bootloader. You know, it's essentially a glorified password entry box. And, uh, you know... Uh, you know, when you normally, you know, turn the machine on, you know, that is locked down, but you can still read from it. Uh, so, like, there's essentially two kinds of passwords. Uh, one is the admin password, which, you know, allows you to write to that encryption. The other one is, like, the locking password, which, you know, unlocks the rest of the drive. So, at that point, the uh, shadow uh, partition goes away and the, you know, the normal, you know, view of the drive is restored. And like from there, it, you know, you know, goes and boots like whatever is on there. Now, you, you said that this is compliant with that specification. So does that mean that, I guess I'm thinking backdoor perspective. There, I, I guess it would vary by manufacturer if they've put a backdoor into it. Really, Yeah. So, you know, again, you're sort of, you know, trusting the, you know, the capabilities of the drive. Uh, so, you know, uh, if there's, you know, in the specification, you know, there is, you know, like ways to regenerate the key that, you know, is actually used. So if you regenerate the key, that's essentially, you know, wiping the drive. Okay. So uh, then along with that, you know, there, at least on Opal 2.0 drives, is that there's a 32-character code that's on the label of the drive. It sort of looks like a UUID, but a lot longer. And if you put that into, like, the factory reset command, it will completely, 
you know, nuke the drive. It essentially changes that key. It nukes the drive and sets it to like what it was like coming out of the factory. So, you know, even though you might not remember the key, you can at least still use the drive again. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting specification. And at least up until now, you needed some sort of commercial package that you pretty much needed to be like a huge company in order to get at. Uh, but now there is a utility called MSED, uh, which, you know, can is an open source tool that you can use with this hidden partition. Uh, unfortunately, it has a bug where it doesn't exactly work correctly on the MX200 series, which really annoys me. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I have to use the, uh, I think it's the dmcrypt slash lux uh, capability on Linux to do my encryption, which is the software, uh, which is a software kind of, uh, you know, drive encryption, sort of like TrueCrypt. Mm -hmm. So whereas with Opal, like you're, you don't even, uh, you're not even using the BIOS with this and it's all in the hardware on the disk itself. So it's pretty useful. Well, your your Opal would, if I understood it right, even though it's not encrypted from a read perspective, it still is encrypted the way it's stored. Yes. So, but if you're using DMcrypt Lux, then like it's encrypted like on a data that's coming out of the drive perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I I was just I mean it, I, it works at the next higher level. In other words, yeah. I, w- I was thinking how it's kind of like a double encryption, even though it's not really because it's unlocked at the one level. But so, I was thinking from an interest point of view. So uh, if your drive is not an Opal 2.0 drive, or at least any kind of Opal drive, uh, like you might still be able to set the encryption password by setting an ATA password in your BIOS. Uh, which can cause issue if you have an inside H20 BIOS, uh, which, you know, is unfortunately ends up into a Microsoft Bob kind of problem, where if you, you know, like type in your password, like a wrong password too many times, it'll come up with a scary message saying system disabled, along with some sort of code, which... I would think that most people would probably dismiss as some sort of error code that that's like specific to the hardware, something like a HTTP 404. Um, but apparently if you take this code and like, you know, crack this code, you can essentially come out with a password that you can use to unlock your disk, which completely misses the point of having a password in the first place. Haha. <laughs> They're just hoping no one notices. Yeah, so, yeah, don't use the ATA passwords if you have one of these BIOSes. Unfortunately, uh, HP laptops tend to have them. So, I was curious, if you have a computer that doesn't have this BIOS in it, you take the drive out and put it into a computer with that BIOS in it, does it mean you can get it access to the drive? Probably not, because, like... It seems like these inside BIOSes, they don't exactly send the password as you type it in. It does like some sort of hashing, which is what uh, this program breaks. Uh, I recently upgraded my web server. 
Uh, if you recall, I was running Glassfish, so I upped that to 4.1. Uh, so, uh, interesting thing with this, I also upgraded the, uh, the Java version it was running on to 1.8, uh, so now I can have TLS 2. Point, or 1.2, uh, running on there. Uh, so, technically, I do have HTTPS running on my blog, but it uses an invalid certificate. So, like, if you try to, you know, do HTTPS on my blog, it'll come up with an invalid certificate, but... You know, you click past that, it's fine. The the data, though, from a technical point of view, have been encrypted. Yes. I assume would still be encrypted, even though it's an invalid certificate. Yes. So, and another thing is, like, I actually optimized my uh, server's ciphers. So, like, I use, like, a very high-grade uh, GCM. Uh, and also, the uh, thing it's, like, the AES GCM for the high-grade and AES CBC for like, I wouldn't exactly want to say a low grade, but like a step down for more compatibility. Um, and of course, you know, like both of these have the uh, ephemeral elliptic curve ephemeral suites. So like if my private key was ever leaked, like everything in the past would still be like locked and safe. Mm. So I believe uh, this is finally loading, at least for me. I want to appreciate the Steam gauge. Uh, so uh, along with my laptop, I actually did install Linux on it, and I installed Steam on it too. Uh, but before I even got it, I wanted to you know, figure out what games I have on my Steam account uh, can actually run on Linux, you know, since you know, uh, Steam is not exactly Windows exclusive anymore. Uh, so Steam Gauge is primarily used to see how much your Steam account is worth in current prices. So it like goes through like all the games and looks up their you know current storefront prices. Uh, so apparently my account is over four thousand uh, dollars. Wow! Fully installed uh, takes eleven hundred gigabytes. Uh, so uh, uh, so even though. You know, that's like sort of like the purpose for which this was uh, made. It can also give you a list of which of your games can be played on Linux, uh, which is something that the actual Steam client cannot do unless you're actually running it on Linux, which I thought was sort of bad. It'd be nice to know ahead of time what all you can run. So you also put oh, in another thing? Yep. So I, I think I, I mentioned it before in other podcasts, uh, the particle.io, formerly spark.io. They have like a mini, uh, very much a chip, the $9 chip bike device. Uh, anyways, I was playing with it since last podcast, and I set it up using my Android, and I actually plugged it in with an LED then, and I even got into their online IDE and got wrote a pro simple program that just did like a flashing light on it and I I'm impressed with how they've set it up. It's very easy to deploy stuff, but uh I th I thought that was pretty neat. Oh there's something I wanted to talk about alongside of it. Oh I know what it was. Yes. So I got the other day I got on sale there's these cell phone recharger things that have like a flashlight in it. Anyways, I plugged in my my particle board the other night in and I let it run all night, and I let it run all day. And then that evening, the next day, it still had some power left on it. 
and then I left it run all night, and it was dead in the morning. But that was I was impressed with how long it stayed because it's the you know it's the size of a small flashlight is the uh, size of the power bank, but it, it it stayed a long time on that. So it has promise for some embedded system that's battery powered. I think based on that test. Uh, let's see, uh, like a cell phone recharger with a flashlight on it. Like, yeah, do you like, mean like a power bank of some sort? Yeah, like a power bank, that's right. Yeah, that, uh, reminds me that, uh, like that last Kickstarter, uh, like the Badger, uh, that yes. should be, that should be coming for me pretty soon. That was pretty interesting. I, I like the, the solar panels with them shooting them and all that, if supposedly they could actually take that. Yeah. So, uh, anywho, we uh, still don't have any podcast feedback, but if you would like to do so, please do so on the nexus.tv. You can do it straight from the show notes page, uh, nexus.tv slash cs91. So don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up all your stuff. And right now I am downloading every game that my Steam account has for Linux. So I'm going to back those up when I can. So I'm pretty sure that I have it at a point where, like, it's stable and I can, like, actually use it. So now that I've figured out how to, uh, you know, switch between the Intel GPU and the NVIDIA GPU that it has, that, you know, I can actually, you know, you know, how should I say, actually start using it and, like, uh, like not, you know, have not my not have myself be under the perception that I'll have to wipe it tomorrow. (laughs) You know, since I actually have the encryption, you know, more or less settled Mm -hmm. for the moment. So if you feel like you're going to wipe it tomorrow, then you don't want to like customize it a lot because it's going to be wiped anyways. So, So, uh, like push comes to shove, like I'll probably just back up my home folder and, uh, like whenever like the, uh, the live, uh, you, the live Linux says, oh, we need to restart so you can boot into your new install. I'll say, hold on a moment, and that's when I'll probably restore my home folder. There you go. So, uh, yeah. Hopefully soon the, uh, like, M said will support the MX200 uh, SSDs without problem, uh, which would be really nice. Since, like, my CPU wouldn't have to be eaten by encryption. Although, even even now, I don't think that's a problem. Because, uh, like, even though I have, like, one of those low-voltage i7s, like, mm-hmm. like, my CPU, like, is hardly at 10%. Okay, so it's not that bad then. So, um, and at least with, uh, like, the integrated GPU running, so, like, the NVIDIA one would be off... It runs pretty cool, and like I have the like the fan like spinning very low, so it like always runs cool, and I believe the battery will last for at least three and a half hours. So at least by the estimation, anyway, I haven't exactly tried it, although it seems to be fairly accurate. In my experience, it seems like the estimations are normally pretty decent. So, Just surprising. Since the estimation, the uh, actually, I have two things that I don't quite like about it. Uh, at least currently, it runs on fast Ethernet and not on gigabit. And unlike your laptop, 
the hot air vents to the right and not to the left. I take it you felt the hot air venting to the left of my laptop. Um, not really, but, you know, you generally have a mouse to the right side. And uh, with my uh, Ferrari laptop, that was sort of a problem because, like, when I was gaming, like, if I had my hand right in front of the vent, it would heat up. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I haven't noticed mine where it vents, but evidently it's not inconvenient. So, you know, but, you know, since this will run quite a bit cooler, it might not be a problem. So, um, I did have to essentially practically take the whole thing apart just to get to the drive bay to swap out the hard drive for the solid state. So, like, I really hope that I don't have to take it out ever. So, anyways, uh, through all this, uh, hi, Mom, how are you doing? Uh, haven't... You haven't commented on this podcast for a while. So, uh, anyways, I guess I will be enjoying this laptop. And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. I have a sort of legal problem these days. So, well, normally it wouldn't be a problem. But on Once Upon a Time, last Tuesday I come home... And in my mailbox is a, you know, little letter. So I open it up, and it's a jury summons. So they want me to be... Well, they don't exactly want me to be there. Like, starting August 31st, they want me to call in for, like, uh, two weeks. Like, every day to see if they actually want me to come down there. Uh, So, which is a sort of problem if they actually do want me to come down there. Because I was planning on taking a vacation in September. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's is that when you're in Germany? Yeah. So I'm like, this really sucks. Now I have a legal problem. <laughs> you're like, just come, just come pick me up at my house. So uh, then I, uh, you know, apparently all you need to do is just like write him a note saying, hey, I had plans. You know, like contact me some other time. Uh, so, like, I'm waiting for my mom to send me the receipt for the airline tickets, you know, just to, you know, make it absolutely clear to them that, yes, I had plans, like, well in advance of you mailing me about this. That way they don't think it's like you went and got airline tickets so, after you got the Although, letter. although, like, I'd be leaving, like, more than two weeks, uh, after, like, the 31st or whatever. You know, like, if they do call me in, chances are it might conflict with that. Like, especially if they call me in the last day and, like, the trial's a couple days long. So, anyways, yeah, I'll have to, uh, you know, send them a note. Um, yes, how how are things with you and any exciting things? Pretty good. Um, one exciting thing is I got uh, from one, one of my friends from college... He's uh, moving back to the state, and he had a, a handgun, a 40 Smith and Wesson, and so I'm getting that from him. So along with that, I bought a whole bunch of ammo online the other day. So that came in the mail. Still don't have the gun though, so have, can't shoot it yet. Mm. I guess that's my exciting thing in hopefully the near future. Yeah, so it's sort of like me having the solid state drive, but not the laptop. Yep, exactly. So uh, I guess that'll be it. So have a good one. You too.